This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. You got to have a J-O-B if you want to be with me. So the U.S. labor market may not be as weak as February's payroll numbers suggested, but the report definitely providing a reality check for everybody about a long forecast slowdown. Uh, maybe it's here or getting closer. Let's talk about the data, what it tells us about the environment and what that means for companies that are out there. Lori Heinel is Deputy Global Chief Investment Officer at State Street Global Advisors based in Boston in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, New York. So great to have you here. Thanks for having me. So you see that kind of data point. And I think initially we were all like, oh my God. Um, how, do you, how do you read it? Yeah, certainly the headline was weak. 20,000 was certainly below what we were expecting. But when you start to parse through some of the details, there were some bright spots. So certainly the increases in December and January, those were both bright spots. When you think about it in context, we still printed about 180,000 jobs on average for the past three months. So while that's a slowing trend, certainly we're not falling off a cliff here. And so are investors reacting the right way? Because it feels like the market's reflecting exactly what you're saying. Because if you look at that headline number, we were talking about this a little bit at the top of the show, you would think stocks are going to fall out of bed in a really, really dramatic way. And yet, you know, Dow's off half of 1%, S&P down seven-tenths of 1%. So... The market seems to be, they're listening to you, Lori. <laughs> well, I, look, I, I think there are several things that the market's grappling with right now. First of all, we've come a long way since yeah. the end of the year, right? So up more mm-hmm. than 10%. It's so a long time that, since Christmas yeah, Eve, right? That's right. So the fact that we're taking a little bit of a pause here shouldn't, shouldn't shock anybody. But, sure. but as we talked about with Gina Martin Adams, it's like, so what's which one do you buy? Do you buy the big sell-off <laughs> uh, Christmas Eve, that whole that big sell-off, or do you buy the bounce back? Now, I don't mean buy, actually go in and buy, but which is the right argument or what? which is the one that really tells us about the current environment? So certainly in the end of the year, we were telling our investors to buy, right? So we actually thought that the markets in many places had sold off to a place where valuation levels were quite attractive, given what we saw as the fundamentals. We still think the fundamentals are good, but the real question next is going to be, can earnings follow through? So we think in the short term, corporate earnings will still be sustained by fiscal stimulus, some of the you know ongoing tax cuts. Uh, there are a variety of things uh, to be optimistic about, but the longer term trajectory we think is a little bit tougher. So unless we start to see corporate investment really take route, then the back half of this year could be a little bit of dangerous territory for investors. So if you're sitting at the Fed today and you're looking at this, you have told the world that you are data dependent (laughs) and that you are a patient, you're probably feeling pretty good right now having a little bit of a a playbook that you can uh, consult here, right? Overall, but one of the things that the Fed's also going to be looking at in this report is the wage uh, increases, right? So there, again, one of the things that the Fed is looking for are signs of inflation or inflation expectations. And the wage growth numbers were actually quite positive. So we still are penciling in another rate hike, likely in September. Likely in September. So I don't know, you know, what an incredible market run that we've had Mm -hmm. coming off the financial crisis. And you do wonder... Is it coming to an end? But if I, I could go back a year, two years, three years, where everyone said, okay, this cycle is sure. getting a little stale, and here we are. Mm-hmm. So I, I, how do you see it going forward? Well, there are lots of things that have to fall into place here. But 
you know, bull markets don't just die of old age. Uh, so certainly the Fed but they being, can get a bit cranky. They, they can, and, and we <laughs> did expect them to get a bit cranky in 2019, and we are, we're looking for a lot more, vol- more volatility. And I think what's been most notable is that the volatility comes in spikes, but then it goes away again. And so you still have this um, sort of tension between are we late stage? Are there more legs? Do consumers and corporates continue to invest? Or does the Fed sort of squelch that? And the good news is the Fed has at least said, we're not going to take the punch bowl away. Lori, can the U.S. continue to chug along even if the rest of the world is not? Well, it can certainly continue to be the leader. Now, again, it's a leader on a you know block of bad houses. But the bottom line is that the U.S. does have a lot of underlying strength. Again, we are still primarily consumer-driven as an economy. We've seen non-manufacturing PMIs still be pretty good. Uh, certainly, we're vulnerable to slow down in the rest of the world. But as long as the U.S. Uh, can kind of continue to benefit from some of these other fundamental trends, we think we've got more legs here. So help us synthesize what we heard from the ECB yesterday mm-hmm. with the jobs report today, what we're hearing out of China, both economically and trade, how does it all fit together in in a mosaic for you? Well, the, one of the charts that we've been looking at a lot is geopolitical risk and the heightened geopolitical risk generally. And what's interesting about that is we are at higher levels than we were even in the GFC, right? But what you also find is that high levels in of the, the, GFC. G, uh, the global, global financial, financial crisis. crisis. Sorry. 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 I'm sorry. No, no, no. My bad. My bad. But the bottom line is that just higher uh, geopolitical risk alone doesn't necessarily mean that markets do poorly. In fact, in those environments, risk premiums get higher, and so you actually do pretty well. But the, the real risk here is how does that bleed into the real economy? And what we saw is that concerns about China-U.S. trade tensions bled into the Chinese economy. Yeah. So the fact of the matter is, is as, we, as we start to get some of these things dissipate, dissipate and there's less risk that they derail the economy, we actually could be in a good place here. But I do wonder, because the market is so swift to react mm-hmm. about these things, and we talk about this, about things working their ways through companies so much more quickly, whether it's through social media or activists, you know, folks aren't given a long time for something to brew. And I do wonder... The central banks have shown that they're very quick to respond to to market volatility. I mean, look at the 180 that we got from Jay Powell. So having said that, won't that in some way kind of provide a bottom yeah. potentially for the financial markets? For better or for worse, I'm not making a judgment here, right. but yeah. we've seen this story over and over. We, we have. And, and look, it's been about the Fed for years now, yeah. if you really think about it. And so once again, to your point, the, the idea that there might be another Fed put out there uh, is actually part of what led to the rally in the early parts of the year. And the fact that the Fed is going to let inflation perhaps run a little more is also going to contribute to the market going still higher. But at some point in time, you know, clearly they have to start to watch, you know, inflation expectations. Lori Heinel, Deputy Global Chief Investment Officer up at SSGA, State Street Global Advisors, based in Boston, but here with us today in New York. Always good to catch up with you. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. I'm going to say it again because this company was founded by a woman for women, home to more than 25 brands that are sold in 150 countries, with most of its employees women as well. So the perfect person to have join us uh, for those reasons and more on this International Women's Day. Let's welcome on the phone in New York, Alex Trower. She's Executive Vice President of Global Communications at SD Lauder. And lucky for me, I actually met her at a Bloomberg Live panel that we did on corporate responsibility. Alex, so great to have you here on this day. And I think you're the perfect person to talk to because I think so many companies are still trying to figure out how do we make things more equal on so many levels. And it's not just about employing more women, but employing them in more strategic positions. Tell us a little bit about the experience that you've had. And you've been at Estee Lauder for a while. 
I have indeed. Well, first, let me thank you, Carol and Jason, for having me on today. Um, I'm very excited to be speaking with you, um, especially on International Women's Day. Um, You know, I think the first thing that's so important as we think about women and equality in the workforce is what is a company's culture? I think it all starts there. And so the culture of a company, the company's values, and how they live out that culture and value uh, value set is so very important. Um, we, As you mentioned, yes, we were founded by an amazing woman, Mrs. Estee Lauder, in 1946. As she was one of the first um, post-World War II business leaders. Um, but you know what? We also have got amazing men at the Estee Lauder companies who are championing women every day. And that starts with Leonard Lauder, our uh, chairman emeritus, William Lauder, our executive chairman, and Fabrizio Freda, our fabulous president and CEO. And so they are, we're creating great programs, yes, but it's more important um, that we live this on a day-to-day basis. And so, Alex, you know, I do wonder, especially given your experience, even before you got to, to Estee Lauder, you worked on Wall Street. And, you know, we talk a lot about Wall Street. We know a lot of people on Wall Street. And it's been much more difficult for, for a lot of those firms to enact some of the policies. And even when they enact some of the policies, get closer and closer toward anything resembling uh, parity. How do you broaden culture into some of these more sort of intransigent uh, areas? Right. Well, I'm so glad you brought that up, Jason. I think the most important thing, especially when you're talking about financial services and Wall Street, is to talk to talk the language that the people you're speaking with understand, and that is numbers. So when you think about the catalyst study, recent catalyst study um, showed that companies with a higher female representation deliver 34% greater return to shareholders. Wow. So that in, itse- in and of itself is a total rallying cry for companies and organizations to get this right. And for the Estee Lauder companies, we are actually one of the top performing companies, uh, top 20 performing companies in the last 10 years. So I think the numbers really tell the story. You know what was interesting too, Alex? I was listening to um, our coverage on Bloomberg Television a little bit earlier uh, and there was an individual who was on and someone put the question about, you know, is there enough women in the pop- pipeline or we've got to work on that? And this individual said, you know what, I am so tired of that argument. There are many women in the pipeline already. And now we need to just move on and hire them and hire them to, you know, in those higher positions at a company. How do you feel about that? I think that's absolutely right. I think that um, you know, again, you've got to you've got to walk the walk, and you can't bellyache about the fact that there's quote no women around. Um, that is absolutely not true. There are fantastic women um, at every level, and um, you just have to look for them. And you frankly don't even have to look that hard. So when we look, for example, at our younger population. Um, you know, right now, 70% of the women at this company are millennials. And that's really where you want to get them at at Gen Z or when they're millennials so that they will fall in love and build their career here. Um, And, you know, interestingly, 66% of our STEM positions at ELC are occupied by women. So, you know, we we want more and more fabulous women. Um, And 
other companies should too. And those old ways need to frankly be tossed out the window. So Alex, only about 30 seconds left, but I do want to ask you of the policies that companies have implemented, what's the one that you feel like really moves us better and closer uh, toward really supporting women and and really having a more long-term diverse workforce? I think we've got to think about paid paternal leave and back-to-work flexibility policies, Um, things like adoption assistance programs, things like infertility benefits, student loan contribution uh, paybacks, a tuition reimbursement program. And we've got to just continue to create the programs and the culture and, frankly, the work arrangements that are going to attract and retain your very best women. And I've got an amazing team, predominantly made up of women. And if anyone's listening to this and uh, they'd like to apply to Estee Lauder, please get in touch with me, (laughs) uh, men or women. But, um, you know, we're very flexible here and we want to make it an easy place for people to do their best work and to have families. Alex, so great to catch up with you. Thank you so much. Alex Trower, she's Executive Vice President of Global Communications over at Estee Lauder on the phone in New York. Oh my God, it is Kate Crater time. She is our fabulous food editor. We got so excited when we read our rundown this morning because we already got a chance to talk to Kate this week for our weekend show. Highly recommend that you watch our weekend show this week and listen to it on Bloomberg Radio because there's even more Kate Crater there. (laughs) We got her back because this section is basically in pursuit and it's a Kate Crater takeover. I love it. I think you thought I was going to bring some mortadella sandwiches True. today. So We're a little I disappointed understand. about that. but They're coming, okay. I promise. <laughs> promise. Well, well, let's start there. Yeah. Mortadella. That was my favorite story by far. I was tweeting about it like crazy because you do such a nice job of reminding us what mortadella is, first all, off. Don't call it bologna. Do don't not call, call it bologna. bologna. Even though it's from bologna. 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 Yeah. Uh, what is mortadella? Remind us what it is. Mortadella is one of the great um, cured meats in this world. And as you said, Jason, it comes from Bologna. And it's sort of like it's crushed meat together. That's the, What makes it really luxurious is it's studded with fat. And you've seen it, and you might have avoided it on a deli platter, especially if it's got some ugly olives in it. But if you take a bite, especially of a well-made one, it melts in your mouth. It's got peppercorns in it, often pistachios. And it's a gorgeous, gorgeous piece of meat. There's even a, 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 a do-it-yourself sort of recipe situation. Uh, you don't get that in pursuits very well, often. Well, you know what? Actually, I keep talking about bringing a mortadella sandwich, but you can make one yourself. All you need is a thick slice. Touche, cake crater. Thank you, Carol. You're welcome. You want to buy? Um, you want to? You want to be able to cut like thick slices of mortadella and pan fry it, and then put it in soft white bread. And it's glorious. It's really great. And they have it at a place Sounds called really Katana cool. Kitten in the West Village in New York. All right. So I really liked that story. I was Can less I enthusiastic. Say, though, even the Uber chef, David Chang, is using it? <laughs> David Chang. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Thank you. He has a new place in Columbus Circle, Bang Bar, and people stand online. They run out. They often run out by 1 o'clock. We'll because, have to do that. But yeah. let's talk. It's like, it's like rotates on a rotisserie, and they based it with lard. So, of course, it's going to be... And then you have a heart attack? And then you have a heart attack, but not before you finished your sandwich. <laughs> there you go. All right. So, I was very excited about that. I was less excited, but apparently others, including the editor, Joel Weber, the editor of the magazine, were very excited about this other piece related to essentially canned fish. 
Yes, it's kind I'm of I'm underselling like, it. It's the re- thank you. It's the redemption. <laughs> it's the redemption of canned fish. It's another food that millennials have been killing. You know, it's gone sales of it have gone down forty over forty percent in the last three decades. But now there are really cool new versions of it. Like so maybe white, boring white tuna fish is not um, is not what everybody wants. But there are these really beautiful, well decorated cans that are coming from around the world. Most of them are awesome, especially if they're coming from the Mediterranean because they preserve the fish almost as soon as they catch it. Right. Put it in really good olive oil or a mustard sauce. Um, some of the more tricky ones, like if you um, get one from China and it's in black bean sauce, be prepared to see a really gross looking peel open the can and it's black and it smells funky because it's preserved. So that might not be your starter canned but it, fish. But it's safe, everybody. It's a, Yeah, sorry. It's safe. It's not. <laughs> it's safe. <laughs> but, but what did Joel Weber say when you were showing Joel him Weber, this? Our editor. I, I maintain that Joel Weber said this is the best story that Business Week has ever done. He since qualified it and said the best story that Pursuits has ever done. We called him on it when he was on, and I he's know. like, "Well, well, well, well." I, I did love it. It's still pretty good, though. It is. I mean, that's a big. It's a big thing, and it's also if you when you get the magazine, you'll see it's a really beautiful picture. It looks like a Wayne Thibault painting of caves, beautiful. And, and they really do come from all over the world. There's like cool products from Eastern Europe, and it's a great way to see the way people eat around the world and cheap. Like they cost like five bucks a can, and it's protein. And it's protein. That's the thing in Japan, actually. It's become really trendy because people in Japan have only recently come to high-protein diets. And so they are they are sort of loving them. And they're also good for emergencies. Like they're stockpiling them, and they're a really good quality fish, too. So, all right, let's talk about the cover or the opener to Pursuits. And this is about chefs who are doing more than cooking. That's right. It's, it's hard to be in the restaurant business now. Margins are getting squeezed. You know, real estate's expensive. The minimum wage is going up. And so a lot of enterprising chefs, especially famous ones, have opened hotels. Like, they're not just have restaurants in hotels. They actually are opening hotels and putting their restaurants in them. Well, and what's amazing from, you know, we are Bloomberg after mm-hmm. all. Margins are good. Margins much better than running yeah, a restaurant like, where they can be razor thin. At least double. They're usually 10 to 15% on a restaurant, if you're lucky. And um, this guy we talked to at Limstone Manor in England said the margins on a hotel are more, if you have a bed, are more like 30%. And then if you put the two together, if you have a restaurant and a hotel, it goes up even higher. Well, uh, and it's and, and you guys point this out in the story. You talk about Nobu, right? Uh, mm-hmm. The king of the chef-run hotel. That's I mean, right. that's what we think about. Mm-hmm. Is that what everybody's doing? Or sometimes it's on no, a smaller it's scale? All, no, Nobu is certainly on a tear. And he has eight properties right now. He's on track to have 20 in wow. the next couple of years in places like Barcelona is where he's opening next. But there's definitely smaller, there's chefs who have their, who are doing smaller models of this, like this fantastic chef, Enrique Alvera, opened a sort of Airbnb style place in Mexico City that I think sounds fantastic. All right. Got to ask you, because it really is one of the must reads in this must read section, about your adventures at Lavenue. <laughs> Oh my gosh, Lavenue. So this is the new, I was really excited to go to Lavenue. It's the new restaurant on the top floor of Saks, and Saks has recently been renovated miles of handbags, and Lavenue is an offshoot of this super trendy place in Paris, where you can see Kim Kardashian, Justin Bieber gets into fights outside of it, um, and so there are, there have been bold face names there, you know, um, Michael Cohen has, Michael Cohen has been spotted there, but the food was kind of a mess. It's very French. There are no salads no burgers like you're supposed to slice anyone 
if you've even had one bite of smoked salmon, you know that experts like to slice it thin. Yeah. There they make it like like Lego, like pieces of giant Lego, and then they serve it with bellinis, and you can make it into a slider if you want, but that's ridiculous. So. Well, and as you point out just very quickly, 20 seconds, they're not serving lunch yet. Yeah. They're not serving lunch. Like you have okay, all these but... handbags, you've invested in all these handbags on the ground floor. That's what it's all about. <laughs> and you're hungry. And you're hungry, and you're shopping, and you need to eat. And then you're locked out well, of Avenue. And good luck if you can find it. Good luck if you can find it is another good Just point. Just follow the chunks. Of- <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Kate Crater, you are truly the best. One of our she favorites. Oh Thanks so much for spending so much time with us this week. Morning sandwich is coming right up. This is Bloomberg Radio. <laughs> so Jason, some data I came across, and this is according to UNESCO's Institute of Statistics data, less than 30% of the world's researchers are women. In North America and Western Europe, it's just 32%. And Asia, uh, Central Asia, apparently has the best stats. They've got an average of about 48%. Let's talk about women in STEM. We're talking about science, technology, engineering, and math. Rashi Karana is director of engineering at the online stock photography company, Shutterstock. We all know them well. And she joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio here in New York on International Women's Day. Nice to have you here. Welcome. Hello. Nice to have you here. As I, um, I'm curious about STEM because I feel like we keep having this conversation about encouraging women to study it or encouraging girls, um, but the numbers continue. It seems to to fall off. What are you finding? What are you seeing? What are the programs that work that actually get more women involved in STEM? Yeah, I think like the biggest challenge we face today is that we don't engage women early on, like girls when they are girls. We need to get them excited about STEM, get them excited about you know all the opportunities that are there you know what goes on into the thinking about stem programs and stuff if you get them excited they won't drop off very soon the other thing is like the gender roles we play to girls but kids but girls are sometimes excited early on and then as they get older they drift off Actually, that I don't think so. You know, you have to keep them engaged, and that is the conversation, like, through education systems. Like, you know, when you're going from your high schools and stuff, keep them engaged. Don't let them get, um, you know, drop off very soon. Like, the professors, the teachers, they have to make sure that they are actually appreciating them and, you know, like, making them stand out in the classes because it is minority. Like, when I went to my undergrad, I was six out of 60, like, six girls and 60 students class right right so your professors have to pay attention to you and make sure that you don't feel left out you don't feel the one person out of like 60 and you know so it's it's the keeping them engaged and keeping them hooked up and so so once you do achieve a stature as you have at your company how do you sort of shift a company's culture or create a culture in, in a smaller company where it's just a given, you know, that it doesn't feel like you have to work harder or it doesn't feel abnormal to have more women uh, represented in a certain group or, you know, across an entire company? Yeah, I think like the, the, the biggest challenge is because you become such a minority, you feel like how do you, you struggle to make a point, you struggle to make your room in the, or a space on the table, even like they say it. So I think what is most important is to be yourself and continue to be yourself. Don't try to be the man in the room, be the woman. I want to ask you something, only because it came up with a question earlier, a conversation earlier about this whole idea about that there are women in the pipeline who, are, you know, have... Um, the qualifications, and I'm curious if that is truly the case in terms of STEM. Have we turned the corner that there are women who are pursuing education, STEM education, and that when it's at a college or at a master's level, they're there but not getting hired? Tell me what you guys are seeing. So I 
I will tell you, when I'm like uh, surfing through resumes, I do not see a lot of women re- resumes in the pipeline. It is still like one out of 20, one out of 30 that there would be a woman's resume even to even say, all right, you know, you qualify to come to an interview. We do try to like bring them in, but we have to have a solid pipeline. But what I'm also seeing... So we like, don't have a solid pipeline we yet. We don't have a solid pipeline. But what I'm also seeing is like, I was speaking at Harvard last weekend at the WeCode conference. Ten years ago, I would not even know about women's conference in engineering and science, but now there are conferences out there for them and students are taking that initiative to go to these conferences out of their pocket they're paying out of their pocket mm-hmm. to you know sponsor themselves and go to these conferences because they want to learn they want to grow 10 years ago even those things didn't exist but so it is changing a little bit but the pipeline is not as balanced as we want it to be and so for younger women who may be listening uh, out there where are the jobs going to be what are, what are the sorts of things that you know across the stem universe that you're thinking about for your own career but also as you encourage people to go along you know obviously they should take a broad approach to learning about uh, science technology etc but are there specific areas ai i know we talk about all the time but mm-hmm. what should they be thinking about more specifically yeah i think the first thing is where their passions are you know some people are number some people are very data focused some people are very like you know they want to quote where their focus is but AI definitely is coming up and the way things are changing and accelerating it is also going to change the world like you know we can use AI to start diffusing bombs and not put humans at risk right so there could be so much we can do healthcare even where you know your some of those diseases that we cannot cure today we might even find cures for and all of that is science and technology behind it um, so there's plenty of opportunity, but also it also depends upon what you're passionate about. So just don't go after something that you don't like. Like if you don't like coding, don't go for coding. But if you love coding, go for it. You know, just don't uh, hesitate. Yeah, it's interesting, right? But uh, but it is worrisome about the numbers in the pipeline because I know we've, we've been talking about this for, for several years. So it's interesting to hear kind of your perspective. Thank you so much. Really appreciate Thank it. Thank you so much. Rashi Karana, she's Director of Engineering at Shutterstock, uh, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on this International Women's Day Friday. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close, wrapping up uh, the last trading day of the week, and it's certainly been an interesting one. Uh, and let's just add on top of it that uh, disappointing jobs report. Let's get into it with Rebecca Felton. She's Chief Risk Officer and Senior Portfolio Manager at Riverfront Investment Group, joining us on the phone from Richmond, Virginia. Happy Friday. Happy International Women's Day. Um, but not happy Jobs Day. Although I am noticing as we get closer uh, to the closing bell, stocks actually taking a leg up. And that's often seen as a positive sign on a overall down day to see some upward momentum uh, into the close. How do you read today's trade? How do you read this week's trade? Well, I mean, we believe that investors are looking for reasons to be, you know, nervous. We are cautiously optimistic. Certainly the job number this morning was a surprise. But let's not forget last month's job number surprise to the upside coming in at over 300000 
And, of course, underemployment trends are improving, and we still have historically one of the lowest unemployment rates we've had in a long time. So uh, I, I do think that the slower global growth, the slower earnings growth here in the U.S., all of those are cause for investors to, to be a little anxious. Well, and Rebecca, it also seems, and I believe you agree, that uh, part of this skittishness owes to what we heard in Europe this week. We were talking earlier in the show about how you know even the president's chief uh, economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, uh, was talking about the ECB and what it said yesterday as uh, you know something that's on his mind. What do we make of that as global investors? Well, their announcement yesterday had been expected. I think what was unexpected was the magnitude of the stimulus as well as the fact that they would keep rates um, steady for the rest of the year. You know, we have been underweight developed international, most specifically Europe. And on the flip side of that, we've been looking for signs of improvement, right? And this signals that maybe growth is slower than even we would expect. But you do have some some early signs of improvement in terms of data. You know, some of the retail sales data has come in better. The service PMI is above 50. So we're actually looking for opportunities potentially to narrow that underweight as we move forward. Wait, so forgive me. So are you positioning and advising investors at this point to kind of mitigate their risks and take a more um, kind of safer position when it comes to allocations? Well, no, I mean, we have been positioned risk on for months. Risk on, yeah. And we are still tilted towards equities in our portfolios, but we have been lowering our equity exposure somewhat, and we've been going more neutral on the fixed income side. Um, as I said, we are underweight Europe, when, or Europe, we're underweight the UK specifically. Um, but you do still have better growth here in the U.S. than you have around the rest of the globe. So barring, again, days like this where investors are looking for reasons to be nervous, um, we're, we're still optimistic about earnings growth as we move into the second half of this year and then lo- looking into 2020. And how much do you worry about trade uh, at this point? I feel like we get mixed signals when we talk to investors about how much that's playing into their list of worries as we go through the rest of 2019. Well, certainly it behooves both sides to come to some sort of resolution because we see how nervous the markets are globally about this situation. And we also know that China needs to stimulate their economic growth. You know, they came out earlier this week and lowered their GDP target range to a six, six and a half percent level. But they're also working towards some internal stimulus with, for example, a reduction in their value added tax for manufacturing companies and they're boosting lending to small businesses. So I think that they they do realize that they need to stimulate growth internally. And certainly if you look at Japan, they are they are dependent on uh, trade with China as well. So it, it behooves all of us for that that to work out. You know, our Dave Wilson was saying, playing <clears throat> a song earlier uh, and talking about charts uh, and just talking about the market environment, reminding us that, you know, here we are on our 10-year anniversary or coming up on it uh, in terms of the bull market. Uh, quite a run. I don't know. How do you assess where we've come so far and kind of what happens from here? Because I think there's, you know, we talked earlier too on our, our program, go back over the last couple of years and we all kept thinking, okay, now it's going to come to an end. And here we are. Well, certainly, you know, lightning can strike out of a clear blue sky. But 
you have to look at the underlying economic data and the earnings growth data. We're just not seeing signs of, of a recession anytime soon. So it could be a slow grind here, and um, it might not feel as much fun as, say, some of the years past. Certainly not as much fun as even the last few weeks leading you know, up to this. But um, we're, we're still optimistic about U.S. markets. And you know, just so we make sure you understand, we understand what what you're thinking about the Fed. I feel like the Fed, the Fed we're looking at today in March 2019 is very different feel of a Fed that we saw toward the end of last year. How are you feeling about where they're situated in terms of what they have in their arsenal to deal with a little bit of uncertainty going forward? Well, I think that certainly the market action in December was was reason for everyone to pause. Um, we do expect them to be data dependent as we move through this year, but it's very clear that they're giving uh, dovish signals, um, and, and, and we would expect that at most you could see a rate hike at the end of the year, but at this juncture, that, that, that again, is probably data dependent. We, we expect them to stay more dovish here in the near term. Rebecca, appreciate your input. Rebecca Felton, have a great weekend. Chief Risk Officer, Senior Portfolio Manager at Riverfront Investment Group, joining us on the phone from Richmond, Virginia. Jason, I just want to take a moment to take a look at some of the most read stories over the past one week. So our past week here. Wow, going deep. Yeah, I am going deep because I like to kind of look back at things. I will say uh, the market wrap up on the 4th on Monday, stocks dropping the most in a month is our most read story in the past week. Number 11, though, continues to be Kylie Jenner becoming the world's youngest self-made billionaire. There you have it. I should have known that you would not let the weekend (laughs) without bringing back your favorite story of the week. Kylie Jenner. It is fascinating, yeah. though. Youngest self-made billionaire coming in 21 years of age. Not exactly uh, self-made. Mom helped a little bit in kind of getting the Jenner, the Kardashian name out there. Yes, true. But in terms of leveraging social media, I think you had brought that up earlier in the week as well. Mm-hmm. You know, no one has yeah. done it uh, quite successfully as uh, that family has. And, you know, Kylie Jenner there uh, leading the way, as you say, one of the Maybe for you and I do so. videos online, maybe. Yeah, oh, we do do We do that. Online. We do that. Maybe we should have a podcast. Oh, wait, we do that as well. Maybe we have a weekly TV show. All oh, right. do that. Check. We are well on our way to being billionaires, and thank you so much for all your help on that. I, if only I could tweet like you. If only, if only. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Yeah.